I think let's begin. Well, first of all, thanks uh, to everyone for coming once again. And today we're going to be uh, podcasting our opinions on Beatles versus Stones. Um, this is a definitive argument that's been going on in Second Life since early 2009. <laughs> <laughs> so we thought we'd rehash it one more time. That's my favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good one. So maybe let's start by looking at their early years, uh, because this is where a lot of people kind of make or break their decision about if they are a Beatles fan or a Stones fan. And a lot of people think early Beatles songs are crap. What do you think, Tate? Were you were you a fan of the early you know, teenage I'm Beatles? Biased. I'm totally biased because, um, yeah, I, I love the early stuff. I mean, I, I think definitely I was definitely hooked for life at Rubber Soul, but I like the early stuff because I think it's. Uh, I like that they covered girl group songs. I really, really got me. I love that. Well, let's take a look back at um, how the Beatles came together. Because I think a lot of that has to do with um, how they turned out. So, as everyone probably knows, um, John and Paul and George, while they were in high school in the 50s, uh, were in a band called The Quarrymen together. And they all sort of rotated the lineup. Um, but eventually, Stuart Sutcliffe and Pete Best uh, joined together, and they became the Beatles in 1960. But if you look at the 50s when rock and roll was born, um, rock and roll was not exactly, well, compared to today's standards, it wasn't very edgy. No, not at all. It was a lot of Pat Boone and... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even in the 60s when they became the Beatles, like the biggest hits were Cliff Richards and still Elvis Presley and like Petula Clark. Right. And Del Shannon. It wasn't edgy at all. Right. Not at all. Well, it, so much of that had to do with, you know, the separation in radio as far as uh, color lines as well. Mm-hmm. And so. I mean, you've got to admit the Beatles fell firmly on the side of the Everly Brothers. They weren't right. really that much of a blues or R&B. Yeah. 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 Um, but once they got together as a band, um, they started writing songs. It was Lennon McCartney from the get-go, which I think is really interesting because that wasn't popular at the time to write right. your own songs. Right. And that's more than you can say for the Rolling Stones, who basically just released like five cover albums before they released an original album. Right. That's, yeah, that's something I always wondered about, actually. I, I wondered uh, why there was so little original material mm -hmm. early on, but uh, I know less about their formation. Well, they were never songwriters. Like, there was no uh, Glimmer Twins songwriting until Andrew Luke Oldham, who was their first manager, made them sit in a room and write a song together. And the first song that they wrote was As Tears Go By, which was too sappy for the Rolling Stones. <laughs> he made them give it up. And um, he also managed Marianne Faithful and he got her to record it instead. Oh, oh, oh wow. <laughs> That's interesting. I didn't know that was their first. It was. It was the first song they wrote together. Um, but eventually the Beatles come together with Brian Epstein, their longtime manager. 
and Brian Epstein has never managed a band before in his life. He's a record store manager. Right. He doesn't know anyone in the record industry other than distribution people that sell him records. Right. And uh, the Beatles are from Liverpool. And they spent uh, a lot of the early 60s, you know, in Hamburg, playing shows, getting their live chops. But nobody knew who they were. And all of the British record industry was based in London. And there was this idea that if you weren't from London, you were no one. Right. They were working class boys and family almost, essentially, and that uh, that had to be. I, I like to think about how scary it must have been from their end, but mm-hmm. getting into that initially, sort of a, an industry that's completely out of their league. I can, in a way, I can see why they gave up so much control um, early on. Totally. Well, they really didn't have a choice. Uh, I think they went to every record label in England twice and got turned down by right. everyone possible. Until finally, of course, Parlophone and George Martin signed them, which is interesting because Parlophone at the time was best known as a jazz label. They didn't sign contemporary artists. Right. They did classical as well, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some classical records. Yeah, they did. Um, but so this is how the Beatles formed. And I think they don't get a lot of credit for all of the uh, playing out that they did in Liverpool at the Cavern Club and years and years in Hamburg and really earning their chops and writing songs together. Whereas mm. the Rolling Stones, <laughs> they had their chops. Yes. They were very yes, much down to the nitty gritty. <laughs> <laughs> they were very yeah. much uh, in the blues scene and they played in a lot of blues bands there was one in particular called blues inc where um well keith richards and Mick Jagger had known each other already as children but it's sort of where they re-met and where they met brian jones and brian jones had placed an ad and found some other guys um and then all of them ended up coming together and becoming the rolling stones and what's really interesting is Andrew Luke Oldham becomes their manager and Spengali. He makes up their image completely from nothing. Like these guys, except for Brian Jones, who had fathered some illegitimate children already and was bad news. <laughs> so the rest of them were just like nice little boys, very well behaved. And, right. you know, Mick Jagger was at the London School of he Economics. LFC, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. That's amazing. Um, it's totally made up, this whole idea that they're dirty rockers. It's not. They were just into blues music. So he made an image for them. And he was a genius at it because he had worked uh, doing publicity for the Beatles before this. Oh, what do you know? Hmm. And he just literally makes them the opposite and then takes them to Decca Records, who were one of the first labels that Brian Epstein had taken the Beatles to. And uh, in 1963, it was already clear that the Beatles were going to be a phenomenon. So Decca immediately signed the Rolling Stones, thinking we have to have our own version of the Beatles. Wow. I had no idea it was such a sort of deliberate thing. I really, I didn't know that. It totally this, was. This is weirding me out. I mean, I, mean, I just, uh, <laughs> I, no. I always thought they were much more sort of organic band. They're really good at that, at appearing that way. That's the way that it's supposed to appear to the outside. So I thought maybe here I would play you guys a couple of early songs um, from both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. This is going to be one of the first Beatles hits and one of the first compositions. Let me just turn the stream back on. 
And then one of the first Jagger Richards um, compositions called Tell Me, which was on their first album, which everything else on there was a cover. Okay. So. All right. That's the uh, psych rock era for both bands where they actually made really big uh, improvements in their sounds and huge strides. Uh, okay, definitely. Although I feel like the Stones fell back as often as they stepped forward in the 60s. Well, it's funny about those two tracks in particular. I mean, um, when you listen to them right sort of side by side like that, the uh, Paint of Black sounds almost like pop, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, it's very hooky, and the other track is much more bizarre. <laughs> it's true, and actually the other track, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, is definitely one of the weirdest Beatles songs, and one of the least pop songs on Revolver, but it was a hit. It, it was, yeah. we were at that point where everything the Beatles did was a hit. Um, so around this time, 1967, something interesting happens to the Rolling Stones, um, and something interesting happens to the Beatles. Uh, the Rolling Stones signed a management deal. Uh, well, he became with Alan Klein. He became their co-manager in '65, and then he bought out Andrew Luke Oldham in '66 and mm-hmm. took the band over completely. Um, Alan Klein is one of the most nefarious people in the history of music. (laughs) And then in 1967, um, the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, died, and they were devastated. He was like the the glue that held that band together. Um, Right. Especially John. (laughs) Yeah, especially John. (laughs) How did you always hear that uh, the reason the Beatles broke up, Tate? Oh, sorry, I got a little chop on that. Would you repeat that? How did you always hear? What was the story you always heard about why the Beatles broke oh, up? Well, you know, I, I'd always heard that it was um, an instigation instigated by Paul and that he wanted out of a bad business deal, that he wanted out of bad management, and but that he still wanted to continue. He just wanted to continue on his own terms. And But I don't know what the real story is I, I really but that's that's what I'd sort of grown up hearing mm-hmm. was that uh, he you know thought they were being screwed and and wanted out well I'm glad you didn't hear that it was Yoko Ono because I really hate when people say that oh well I, you know I'd heard that but I never really believed that yeah it seems sexist um, yeah because it is but what you heard is true, and it was Alan Klein. Um, after uh, the Rolling Stones, after he started managing them, <laughs> she was annoying, okay. <laughs> <laughs> after he started managing the Rolling Stones, um, their deal came about because Mick Jagger saw what Alan Klein had done for Sam Cooke, who he was also managing, and how he was able to go through and audit the books of record labels and force them to pay uh all kinds of royalties that they would hold back or hide and mm. Mick Jagger was never one to uh, let go of a penny so right. he brought Klein on and saw some amazing results they started getting all this money from DECA and their publishers that they had been uh, withholding 
and Klein was an accountant, so he really knew how to go through and analyze books. But he was an accountant, so he also knew how to hide money. And before too long, Mick Jagger realized that uh, he wasn't a trustworthy individual, and he had been signing some bad contracts on their behalf, uh, some unfavorable deals, taking over more rights to their material than they were really comfortable with without talking to them about it. And Alan, before he realized all of these bad things, though, Mick Jagger had um, introduced Klein to Paul McCartney after Brian Epstein passed away and suggested maybe that they would like to have Klein manage them as well and told them about all of the magic money tricks that he could uh, pull. But before too long, Jagger realized that this was not a good situation. And history kind of varies here. Some people say uh, that Jagger kept forcing Klein off because Klein's biggest dream in the world was to manage the Beatles. They were the most powerful band in the world, and he was just hypnotized by them. And uh, so Mick Jagger made it possible for uh, Klein to meet John Lennon at like the Rock and Roll Electric Circus taping. And uh, the whole plan, if you believe in the more conspiracy theory, nefarious <laughs> side of things, which sometimes I do, was to distract Klein with the Beatles so that the Stones could extract themselves from his management. Um, and... To explain how bad things got between Klein and the Rolling Stones, ABCO, which released all of their records up to 1970, um, was Alan Klein's label, and he retained rights, master rights, to all of their recordings, and after the band broke up with him, he (laughs) sued and still managed to maintain all of the rights because they had signed off on several very shady documents. They don't have control over those recordings at all. Alan Klein's estate does, even today. And they had to leave their record label and go sign a new deal with Virgin, which they did on the release of Sticky Fingers, um, just to get away and make a fresh start. Right, right. Yeah, so Alan Klein gets in the middle of the Beatles, and uh, they were pretty much fighting all the time anyway and they didn't have Brian Epstein there to pull them back together and uh, you know make them talk to each other he'd always been the mediator for that band and they didn't have anyone they trusted but they did have Apple Corpse which um, was not being run very well they were both such a neat idea (laughs) such a great idea right Um, to have a company where it's a record label it's publishing house it's a boutique department store it's everything that they wanted to do yeah, and it's a tax shelter for their money from the British government, right? And they gave away um, scholarship grants to uh, young artists in the UK, one of whom was Yoko Ono. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. they gave away these scholarships via the Apple Corps uh, without expecting to ever get the money back, and they never did. Right. But <laughs> the way that they ran that business was terrible, and the first thing Alan Klein did, they wouldn't let him deal with their record label or their publisher. So he busted in on Apple Corps and started cutting the budget, making things work better so that the Beatles weren't going broke because of their own company. Wow. And so John, George, and Ringo loved him. Did they actually succeed in any of that with bailing out or helping in any way? Yeah, no, he did. He um <laughs> made that company make sense and uh, it never became profitable, obviously. 
but he yeah. stopped it from bleeding them dry. Oh, good. Okay. Um, he did bail, however. One of the other goals that Alan Klein had was to try and gain control of the Beatles publishing from Sony ATV Publishing, and uh, he did not manage to do that, which was a part of why he fell out of favor. But oh, yeah. while he was still doing good things, um, John and George and Ringo all liked him and decided they wanted him to be their manager. Paul wanted Lee Eastman. Right. Also known as Linda McCartney's father. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they couldn't agree. And everyone didn't want Lee Eastman because they thought it meant Paul's decisions would get more weight than theirs. Right. Um, right. And they were all just fighting and bitching each other out all the time anyway. <laughs> this is kind of where Yoko Ono comes in because uh, all of her annoyingness and overreaching and um, being invited to the studio for the White Album and Abbey Road, um, this is a, a lot of what caused them to bicker. Right. Yeah, they'd never had any wives or girlfriends in the studio as far as I know. Mm-hmm. I it was a rule, I think. Yeah. I wonder, I've always wondered about that. Like, what did Yoko Ono do <laughs> to convince them? I, I think John must have made an ultimatum. I think he must have said, you know, it's either both of us or not me, you know. Yeah, he has to have. But I mean, what did Yoko do to John to? Oh, I just think, you know, that's, I like to believe that's nerve. But <laughs> 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 that that's, you know. I don't know. I don't I don't like to think she did anything to him in particular other than John's sort of issues, you know, inherent. I, mean, I I don't know. Like I read this one crazy story about I think during the White Album when she was pregnant, um she'd already had a few miscarriages with John. Right. And so it, she insisted that they bring a bed in and put a microphone over it so that she could speak to everyone and still hear the recordings every day. <laughs> Like, yeah, that's crazy. But, you know, if in, in the context of Yoko's sort of body of work, it's not that far-fetched. I think John knew what he was getting into. Tell me more about what you're thinking there. I <laughs> just, I think that, you know, she was an established artist. She was, uh, you know, part of Fluxus and uh, well, she had, I think, at least 10 years in age on him as well. Mm-hmm. So I think you know, he looked up to her. And, I think that's uh, interesting, especially you know, considering... He went to art school, remember? He went, he went to art college initially. Right. And um, I think he always sort of fancied people who made art their living. I think that's nice. I like your romantic notion of it. I try to reconcile that with my idea of John from the earlier 60s, who was married to Cynthia Lennon and left her. And but you know left her with nothing, um, right? Yeah, and no skills because she was the wife, so she was supposed to stay home and do nothing. But then when she actually did that, she was boring, so he didn't want to be with her. Right. Well, and also the whole sort of marrying out of obligation, the you know mm-hmm. that whole. Is he? I mean, he he certainly didn't hold back on the hurtful comments about that later on about oh well she was pregnant so we had to get married mm-hmm. that kind of thing so I don't know um yeah that's uh, you know all all reports say that he was uh a passionate person but not necessarily a nice guy so 
Yeah, so it's interesting that the <laughs> yeah. reputed nice guy of the Beatles, Paul McCartney, is actually really the one that broke them up. Um, and technically speaking, he did, <laughs> although George Harrison was the first Beatle to quit. And he quit the band twice, and Ringo quit the band before that as well. And they always came back, and finally, Paul really quit in 1969. Um, but, so, you know that Let It Be was recorded early in 1969, just not released until 1970, post-humorous right. breakup. But the real last um, album that the Beatles recorded was Abbey Road. Abbey Road, right. So knowing everything that we just talked about, about uh, management and breakup, if you listen to the last three songs on Abbey Road, which I'm going to play for you now, um, they're all written by Paul, and it's sort of like a goodbye. It's like he knew he was going to do this, and these are the last songs he's going to write with them. So it's very sweet. That's true. Um, and Carry That Weight is supposed to be, if you listen to it in the right context, uh, a kiss-off to Alan Klein, like a, you're gonna, you're the one responsible for the breakup of this band. Right. So, yeah, I'm going to play you those. And then also from 1969, something off of uh, Let It Bleed. And you can tell that the Stones are in a very different place because for them, 1969 is the year of Woodstock and Altamont. All right. All right. So hold on while we listen to a few more tracks. Okay. All right. So we're back. And uh, so as I alluded to earlier, uh, 1969, when all of that business went down, was when the world started to really change and the whole flower child thing started to die out. And by right. 1970, it was just like a whole new culture of right. where hippies were, you know, stabbing each other at concerts, whatever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but um, so here's the question I want to pose to you, Tate. Okay. Did the Rolling Stones need the Beatles to break up in order to be considered a great band in the seventies. I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it would have made any difference, uh, as far as their progress, as far as their popularity, maybe, maybe. Yeah. But, um, not as far as their creative, uh, blossoming. Hmm. Interesting. But, yeah. That's how I see it. I feel like they were always under the Beatles' shadow, kind of responding to whatever the Beatles had done until finally the Beatles broke up and they could just do whatever they wanted to do. It must have helped. <laughs> yeah, I think creatively it must have helped. Um, but, yeah, so back to the Beatles breaking up. And I said I would say something about um, – do you want to repeat what you typed uh, while we were listening to those songs, Tate? Oh, right, yeah. Uh, the, oh, yeah, my question was about uh... – Paul's confidence in leaving, whether he um, had more, uh, felt that he had more to lose and or more to offer, uh, sort of in the immediate sense, and because songwriting came so much easier to him than, than it did for John, for example. Totally. I mean, um, yeah. I think you have a real point there, um, because the way that the Beatles, as far as the public knows, broke up, the way that everyone found out was it after Let It Be came out, like literally a week afterwards, Paul released his first solo album. And he, right. was, he did it on purpose to compete with the uh, Beatles album because he was pissed about the Phil Spector remixes of his songs on that album that he wasn't consulted on, mm -hmm. that Alan Klein organized. 
Um, and so he just put it into a press release. Paul McCartney's releasing a new album and the Beatles have broken up and made it seem like he had decided to break the Beatles up. Right. And John was pissed. John was so <laughs> mad because they were not going to say anything about it. And he did it. Like, it's something, it's like Justin Timberlake took a page right out of the Beatles playbook, I feel like, the Paul McCartney playbook. Because right. he used the the um, popularity of his past group to springboard into a successful first solo album. Sort of like Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears and that whole Crimea River scenario. <laughs> Right, he was the whole sort of, well, I'm sure he must have felt he was the stock, totally. you know, the real money draw, so. And um, after Brian Epstein had died, honestly, Paul kind of took over the group, and everybody was in shock, and Paul just told them what to do. True. And uh, when they decided they didn't want to do that and didn't want his Lee Eastman managing the band, Paul got all butthurt and ran off, basically. I love the triumph of George Harrison, though. Yes, let's talk about your feelings on George Harrison. The first Harrison solo album. I mean, nobody was expecting that, right? True. So I just, I love that because uh, Paul was so smug. And George had all of that stuff stashed away. And I just, I love it. He was always the underrated songwriter in the group. Like they had to admit on Abbey Road, I mean, something is one of the best songs on that album. Definitely. And I think that was a hard pill for John and Paul to swallow that George was really coming into his own as a songwriter. But why don't you tell everybody a little bit more about George's first solo album in case they don't know it or haven't heard it? Uh, All Things Must Pass. Huge, epic record. Had um, a zillion guest stars and... uh, Including, I think, some Rolling Stones. Right. And um, who uh, who else? Leon... um, Gosh, it had so many people. But um, the <laughs> what I love about it is, um, you know, all of the great songs. I mean, aside from the whole um, My Sweet Lord scandal. <laughs> yeah, no, explain <laughs> what that is. Explain the what that is. Uh, well, you know, My Sweet Lord so closely resembled He's So Fine, mm-hmm. right? George got sued at the time for copyright infringement, I think it was. And um, had to actually go to court and defend his songwriting process to prove that he didn't uh, sort of deliberately steal it, but he still had to pay, I think. (laughs) Well, interesting note about that. Um, So Alan Klein went on to buy the rights to all of Phil Spector's works, and that includes uh, his production on He's So Fine. (laughs) Uh huh, and um, he bought Bright Tunes, the music publishing company that sued George Harrison in that case. Evil. Uh huh. So it was really complicated, and there was a lot of uh, back and forth. Um, ultimately, according to Wikipedia, Harrison became the owner of He's So Fine because of all of the uh, shenanigans that Alan Klein pulled. Oh, I have no idea. That's so funny. Yeah, they just couldn't get rid of that guy once they got involved with him. And wow. Okay. So he's not really paying anymore. Um, I don't think so. so. He owns the song now. Right. Wow. But so that's the 70s for the Beatles. They go on to make more Beatles albums, but, you know, as solo albums, basically. Right. And the 70s for the Stones um, becomes... that I want to hear about. Well, that's like the best period, I think. All the best Stones albums. You've got Sticky Fingers in 71. 
And then, um, so while the Beatles created Apple Corps as a tax shelter, because taxes were extremely aggressive in the UK in the 60s and 70s. It's like 95%. Mm-hmm. It was a huge portion of your bracket. income. Yeah. Um, so they made a company and gave money away, basically. <laughs> Somewhat, right. un- sometimes unwittingly, but sometimes on purpose. <laughs> Whereas the Stones, um, after 1970, when they were finished with Alan Klein, realized they had no money, but they had huge tax bills. So in uh, 71, when Sticky Fingers was done and they started working on exile in Main Street, they went into exile in France, tax exile, so they could avoid paying their bill to the British government. And this is when they all became heroin addicts. Right, right. <laughs> Which is great. But as heroin addicts, they produced probably the, one of their best albums, Exile, for sure. Um, and then you have Goat's Head Soup in 73, which is amazing, and then a bunch of stupid crap for a little bit, um, and Some Girls in 78, which is another amazing album. But they get into sort of the disco period. Right. And then the Rolling Stones should have broken up, in my opinion, after 1978. That should have uh, been the end of it. No, no tattoo you? No, it's not really necessary. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> there's no reason. It's just, there's one good song on that album. <laughs> okay. I'll concede that. <laughs> and what do we get instead? They're still together today. Like lecherous old men running around on tour. <laughs> like, this is my question. How long, how old can you be and still sing songs about fucking? Because at some point it becomes gross. <laughs> That's, uh, well, that's where they, they kind of bought themselves some insurance by, you know, they can always revert to their blues roots in that sense. Because those guys, you know, they're ancient, ancient. Yeah, but do they? Like, if you saw um, that Martin Scorsese tour documentary that they just did, um, the Shine a Light, I guess it was called. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. They're still singing these old songs, and Keith Lip- Richards is That's still on stage every night with his eyeliner on, making eyes at women in the crowd. It's just like... I'd probably love it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I can't. I can't handle it. It's gross at this point. <laughs> well, yeah. But, yeah. That, that It does go along with their whole, uh, you know, what they, I guess, sold their souls for. So... Uh, true, true enough. So, because of this, I mean, can we agree that because they've become the legend, maybe the Stones are the badder boys than the Beatles? I think, yeah, I think they were always sort of badder, but, you know, whether they were actually more revolutionary is a you know, different thing, I think. True. Like, I can directly point to the ways the Beatles influenced Radiohead. I can right, show you exactly. an evolution there. Nirvana. Yeah, Nirvana. I mean, there's a clear evolution, and uh, I'm not sure who those bands are for the Stones. Right. Like, who couldn't have existed without the Rolling Stones? I feel more like the Rolling Stones have a lot of depths to blues that they couldn't have existed without than right. bands they've influenced. True. So, yes. Yeah, that settles it. <laughs> that settles it. The Stones should have broken up in 1978, and they would have had a perfect, perfect history, just like the Beatles. The Beatles will always be perfect because they broke up while they were still at their height and popular. Definitely. If they had gone into the 80s, you know they would have sucked. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> so that's pretty much the story of the Beatles and the Stones. I thought I would finish off playing you uh, something from the last Beatles album and then uh, something from the Rolling Stones that they released the year immediately following. And if there are any points in this that we didn't discuss that you'd like to hear more about, just type it into the room while these two songs play and uh, we'll come back and chat, chat with you some more. Okay, so that was a little bit of Beatles versus Stones choral action for you. And before we say goodbye, uh, since we were talking about wild horses in chat, fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> Wild Horses, the uh, reason for the song being written, still under debate. Um, Marianne Faithful insists that Mick Jagger wrote it for her, about her, while they were still together, before 1967 when they broke up and she became a massive heroin addict. Right. However, this album, when it came out, um, he was already with Bianca Jagger and about to get married to her. So he insisted publicly that it was not about Marianne Faithful. It had nothing to do with her. Interesting. I find that hard to believe, but... Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. But anyway, thanks so much for doing this podcast with me today, Tate. Oh, thank you for having me on. I, I learned a lot, especially from my uh, biased Beatles perspective. <laughs> <laughs> it's now uh, better backed up, so... <laughs> yeah, so I guess we didn't really resolve the question of Beatles versus Stones. It's all down to your personal preference anyway, but... Perhaps uh, you learn something new and exciting about either of the bands. Definitely. All right. And as always, if you'd like to do one of these podcasts with me, it's an open invitation and any topic is on the table. So just drop me an eye in. And that's it. Thanks to everyone for coming. Bye, Bye. everyone. <laughs>